the biggest mistake I made in our business is our name was Video Genie. We were about video testimonials. And I kept on getting feedback from our customers of, we would really like to do photos. Hey, what's going on with Instagram? And I, because I had just raised $2 million, I was very, very much not open to that. I was, I was, I would say I was more in love with our product than with our customer. And so kept on getting this feedback and ignored it and said, no, we're all about video. Here's all the stats on how video is going to explode. This is why this is the next big thing. And a company came along that was focused on photos. It was focused on Instagram and they were sold for $130 million. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. All right, guys, I got to give another shout out to a quick sponsor of the show, Chili Piper. Did you guys know that 60% of inbound leads don't convert to a meeting? And that you can double your inbound conversions by eliminating the waiting period between the form fill and the meeting? And so with Chili Piper, you can turn those leads into meetings instantly with intelligent rules that auto-qualify and route leads in real time. Also, you never let leads fall through the crack because they have a two-way sync with your CRM, which this helps also give you clean attribution on those leads at the end of the day. So with Chili Piper, you have no more leaky funnel. Instead, you've got more leads, more meetings, and more pipeline. Start turning leads into meetings today with Chili Piper. Visit chilipiper.com slash leaders to learn more. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. I'm really excited to welcome Justin Nasiri today. He's the founder and CEO of Captivate.ai. I have come to know Justin based on his excellent LinkedIn outreach, and we've had opportunities to speak to some groups together. And I just think he has a lot of great insights of the, you know, the founder journey and the things that that we all try to accomplish in a more organic way using our our own expertise uh in a non self-congratulatory kind of way so justin i'll let you do your intro of yourself and the company and we'll dive into some storytelling yeah i'll give you i'll give you a little bit more detailed intro because i know we're going to talk about mistakes made and lessons learned on the entrepreneurial journey so i actually started out in the navy i was on nuclear submarines for five years about a year of that in total spent underwater and got out and didn't know what I was going to do, which is a common pain point, a common problem for veterans. I figured I'd go to business school to try and figure out what was out there. Uh, I was fortunate to go to business school at Stanford and actually thought I was going to become a consultant, was going to a company called McKinsey in New York and ended up turning that down to start a company instead called Storybox. And we launched at TechCrunch Disrupt. I raised $3 million from Google's chairman, Eric Schmidt and other investors, uh, grew the company, shrunk the company about a dozen times in that order, and um, ultimately sold that company for a, a non-headline making, but, but significant outcome for me. After that, I, I started for fun a podcast called Beyond the Uniform, 
And that was meant to solve this pain point of what are veterans going to do when they get out of the military. Um, I've done 405 episodes to date. And that podcast led me to the insight that started my current company, which is Captivate.ai, where we turn podcasts and webinars into months worth of social media content. And so, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll dive in in more detail, but at times I almost feel like the way that I'm building Captivate is either in in good terms, learning from my mistakes at Captivate, and maybe in bad terms, a, a knee jerk reaction to a lot of the mistakes that I made at Captivate and trying to do things differently. Yeah, absolutely. I so relate to that. And anytime I say something smart, you know, I, and people go, "Oh, wow, that's so great!" You know, wisdom or anything like that. I'm like, you got to understand, like. I came to that by a, a process of elimination of what not to do. And uh, I've, I've had, this is my 13th run at trying to make something successful. And uh, half of them have been abject disasters and the rest have, you know, paid the bills for the last 15 years of self-employment. But uh, to say there's been any knockout hit would be an absolute lie. I, uh, I seem to be good at hitting singles, doubles, and striking out, uh, trying not to take anybody else down with me. So, and, you know. and I feel like anyone listening who has who has been in the arena realizes how excruciatingly difficult a single is. You know, and like we kind of we we kind of dismiss that, and it's like to take something from nothing and have a single dollar made from that is incredible. It's like a it's like this miracle, but we're surrounded sometimes by the, you know, the Michael Phelpses of business sometimes and it makes us feel shitty about running 5 miles or you know swimming a lap. But you know it's just kind of like sometimes the perspective throws us off, but I I just want to even celebrate the fact that you've had singles and doubles because I think a lot of people listening would love to even make it to that point. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we work with founders that have, you know, turned out half a million dollars from a thing. And the first thing I'll always tell them is like, you, you have to appreciate that you're like already in the 99th for sure plus percentile of people yep. that made money out of anything. Yeah. And, for sure. and how difficult that is. We have this startup mythology now that, you know, you need to go out and be a unicorn or any of this, this other garbage and that you can measure your, you know, worth by how much money you raised by what checks you got that weren't revenue. And, yeah. you know, so I rage against the machine a little I, bit there. So. I do too. And I don't, I don't want to denigrate people that go that path because the world is a better place with a lot of these unicorns. Like I think that they serve a place in our, in our world. What I mourn is the vast number of entrepreneurs where they weren't meant or the company or the idea for whatever reason was not meant to be a unicorn, but in striving to do so, they crushed themselves or what would have been a great enterprise company or small business. Like it's sometimes it feels like, um, you know, with, with, uh, even, with aesthetics, right? We've seen this with, with women. Sometimes we hold them up to this model standard that is photoshopped and unrealistic. I feel like there's an equivalent going on with entrepreneurs where it's like, not everyone is meant to look like that. Not everyone, you know, if, if you build a business that generates money for you to survive on and you're solving some pain point and you're your own boss, that is a success. 
right? Full stop. And yes, if you, if you really are wired that you have to make a billion dollar company, great, but not everyone is meant to do that. Not every idea is meant to do that. And I feel like, especially in Silicon Valley, we, we force companies to fit that mold. And in doing so, we shatter what would have other bitwise been exceptional mid-sized businesses. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, losing sight or, you know, sort of not being okay with, a a lifestyle business like as if that's some kind of bad thing that we yep. we have five six seven people and we make x million dollars and but that's just lifestyle like we yep. don't as, like as if that's not aspiring to enough uh making something out of nothing you know so you know, yep. like you still i i mean i i think entrepreneurship is sort of like this alchemy of you know uh, you can create money out of uh a near zero you know, uh, it's just like turning uh, lead into gold. Yeah. It's the only opportunity you may ever get to do that. And you talked about the consulting space. And I'm a big fan of just doing services businesses. And yeah. I don't even need a technology yep. thing. Uh, B2B services. Look, I'm never going to get a 90% gross margin. And I'm not going to scale to $100 million of, of ARR. Uh, but, I, you know, I think we help that B2B economy go. And I think I think it's an incredible way to start a company because if you're servicing, you're you're intimately connected with a uh, company, with a team, you're helping them solve a problem. And if you do that enough, you get the pattern recognition. You may say, oh, I see a consistent problem that may be solved by productizing this or creating content that solved like it just kind of can lead to something else and if it doesn't it generates a lot of money in and of itself so like that's such a great place for any company to start and even to stay it's such a great place to leave industry or to you know i mean consulting is just paid customer discovery if you're paying attention uh the bad side of that is that you can just become sort of a, a time for money uh, you know, sort of burnout case that that I see happen a lot. It, it's it's an easy thing to start. It's a difficult thing to scale, uh, particularly when you're a practitioner. Uh, you know, you enjoy actually doing the work, and you say, "Well, I never really set out to run a business, uh, so how do I bring in more humans to do the thing that I actually wanted to do?" Because I have to spend all day selling and trying to get them paid, and uh, there are ceilings to it that that don't behave nicely, but it's a great way to start. And I like, I like the book company of one. Cause I feel like it really addresses that point of you don't have to necessarily grow. You can raise your rates. You can continue to do the same work. Like sometimes we, we grow out of our zone of genius rather than just making it work better, doing what we enjoy doing. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I didn't know you had the almost McKinsey experience. I did my uh, uh, Fortune 500 consulting PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, time in the bunker. And I'll always say that I'm grateful to have that anchor on my resume. I'm equally likely to say that I would never, ever, ever put myself through that again. I uh, it, it was good early logo collection uh, and when I look at it. And I, and I did pick up a lot of, uh, you know, maybe enterprise ready disciplines that that would pay off well yeah i, I mean i i think about that decision all the time I'm, I'm grateful for where i've ended up but i i feel like 
two years at McKinsey would have been great. Two years in consulting in general would have been great. I, I feel like at the time I was in a rush to just kind of pursue something I was passionate about. But I, I see the value of, of, of consulting to build a skill set, like you said, or maybe even better joining a 200 to 500 person startup, learning the ropes there, learning, you know, when, when I kind of came with a military background and then an MBA, I was reinventing everything with Storybox and not all of it needed to be reinvented. And I kind of feel like had I gone to a more well-established company or startup, I, I could have gained a few years of experience of seeing, okay, this is how to do HR. This is how to do marketing. That's like at least my story or guess. Who knows? Maybe I would have been stuck there. Maybe I wouldn't have learned. But um, like you said, I've got a lot of scars that I didn't need to learn on my own startup dollar. I could have learned on someone else's dime. Yeah. Learning on somebody else's dollar, I think, is incredibly valuable. We think so much about leverage around capital. I mean, I would say leverage around somebody else's money in your career could pay off a whole lot more than trying to build a business around somebody else's money right out of the gate. First of all, I don't know why anybody gives a brand new entrepreneur a bunch of money. I mean, it, it's ludicrous to me how much uh, you know capital, seed, and or otherwise goes down the drain. Uh, basically paying for the the school of hard knocks. Yeah. You, uh, you just got your driver's license. Let me give you this Ferrari. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> right. Right. And I mean, you know that, like, I mean, I look back to when I got my driver's license and I did not deserve the, the capabilities that came with that sort of overpowering <laughs> the learning mechanism. It, it's bizarre to me. And God bless the people that are successful, you know, and pull that off. But I, I also wonder if they lost some of the opportunity of, of failure there, because what you often see is the sophomore efforts from those people are uh, an abject disaster. Yeah. As well. And I, yeah. I mean, it's one of the, one of the two things I'm most thinking about with Captivate is, is funding. And so, you know, I, my experience in raising money, being an inexperienced entrepreneur was it it uh, it kind of prevented me from having to listen to the market, and I started building products that our investors thought would work, that I thought would work, but I had no proof from customer demand demand that I needed to build that. Versus now, like I can't build anything unless I'm guaranteed that someone's going to pay for it. Like I don't want, I'm bootstrapping everything. And so every cent counts. And I think that's great. I think it keeps me laser focused. You know, an, another benefit to my bootstrapping right now is I've already seen in the nine months Captivate's been around, there's been three different ideas that I would have pursued had, had I had the money I would have invested in. And they, they were the wrong idea. And I'm I'm seeing that now in hindsight, but that would have been you know six hundred seven hundred thousand dollars down the toilet. So I do like that aspect of bootstrapping. You know, the downside is it's um, slower to grow. You know, and and it could accelerate you to to trying to figure out in two years 
is this a valid business versus dragging it out for four or five years, which is something I'm really consciously aware of not wanting to sink a ton of time into something that's not, not the right idea. And then there's just distraction. Like every cent that I make with Captivate gets poured back into the company, but that means, you know, that's, that has financial implications for me as well. And eventually I'll either need to start pulling money out of the company or taking on, on side projects with, which detract from my focus on the company, which means we're going to be less quick. So there's this dilemma that, again, is it a knee-jerk reaction or is it true to who I am as an entrepreneur that I'm better off bootstrapping rather than fundraising? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I I think there's certainly a place for acceleration capital. You know, if you kind of say, like, I have a thing that's proven, I have a, a model that ought to be deployed faster and I simply cannot do that without more gas on on the fire that makes a lot of sense i don't see often that capital is deployed that way but i i mean i can i can certainly look at some of our efforts and say you know i know what exactly what i would do with that extra million dollars um however you know uh, that's not i also know that i have to take my eye off the ball to go get it yeah yeah. And, and yeah. I think about that a lot too. You know, for myself, I've said until we get to a hundred thousand in monthly recurring revenue, fundraising is off the table. But when I talk to to first-time entrepreneurs, I'm often saying, like, hey, it takes the same amount of effort to get a sale as to get an investor. And with the sale, you get market feedback, you get customer relationships, like you don't give away equity. There's so many benefits to tracking down a sale. Now the, the fundraising may be a much larger check, but it's not necessarily market validation. So I, I like your distinction of acceleration versus, you know, exploration, which might not be a, a good use of capital. Right. Yeah. I think that, uh, you, you certainly could always find ways to spend money. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's an unlimited list of things that I, and, and frankly, I don't want to budget for Like, I just want to drop that five grand, you know, right now and get that over with. Uh, but there is a, a lack of discipline to that. Cash flow management is everything. I also will say it's a joy to have gotten out of the spot where you need to do like daily cash flow uh, reconciliation so that you don't bounce a check. Uh, you know, that the, we, um, I tell this story a lot, but I mean, we legitimately built a spreadsheet that showed our daily cash flow, you know, projected out as much as we could make it happen. And, uh, wherever that thing went negative, we had a, a gif of a dumpster fire that, that would appear in the spreadsheet and uh, literally the only objective for the first like five months of the business was make the dumpster fire gif appear farther and farther away from today <laughs> so and you have to have fun with it but i mean that is the point where you go like crap you know we can't pay ourselves next week uh, you know <laughs> and um you know then you take that home to your you know significant other whoever your other constituents are and you kind of go listen you know thanks for being my partner in this and i'm going to need a little help here uh those days happen it's nice to get past those days but you certainly pick up the disciplines necessary to think very carefully about how to bring on other humans and how to hire and why you ought to do that with discipline and take a little longer to write good documentation that you're going to need later uh, leverage on your time with good behaviors i think is very important 
I sort of rail a little bit against the do unscalable things at the beginning. I, I would prefer to slow down, not grow as fast, write, write that process down quicker because I think that you can actually give it to somebody else. And we just had the experience yesterday. We're hiring again and we got to go back into our, you know, sort of self-directed hiring playbook. Our job descriptions were done. Our hiring challenge questions were done. We were able to dish out exact documentation to the recruiter. And I, I just said, geez, I'm so glad that we did this. And I know this took some hours before, but can you imagine if we had to do that right now? That would suck. Uh, very how important. do you how do you document your processes? Because I'm a huge fan of this. It's something I struggle to do. And, you know, we've used Google Docs, we've used um, Zendesk, we've used a wiki. I'm just kind of curious, how do you how do you guys document? Advanced wiki, I guess, is the right way to say. So we use we love Confluence from Atlassian. Uh, and they've made since they raised a hundred bajillion dollars uh, going public, that product has gotten better and better and better. Uh, I was a Confluence user back when it first came out as really the only good enterprise wiki. And I think it's gotten better and better from there. Uh, users who are familiar with Notion would recognize the interface and I actually think they did a, a better job with it. So, uh, and we're not a software company, so we don't use, we don't use Jira, for example. Uh, it ties in deeply with Jira, it ties in with a lot of other tools. Same company owns Trello now, if you're familiar with, with that. But I like it because you have the, the deep hyperlinking and sort of hierarchical set of, of documents where you can actually have some organization. It does roughly the same thing when you're in any given document. It's the same thing as a Google Doc. But how do you link reference and otherwise access and organize a set of Google Docs other than a folder structure? It doesn't work. Right. And that falls over uh, every time I see somebody try. Well, but we just use Google Docs like you can't do that because you can't find it and you can't cross reference. Um, you get version issues, you know, the whole the whole thing. So it's OK to start with that. But, pff, man, you get past 10 documents and you're totally screwed. Uh, so I, I encourage people to look at, at Confluence. I think it's a great tool. And I think for 10 users now, they even made it free. I mean, you still have to pay for the thing. So. Uh, everywhere we go, we, we spin up an instance for that. Uh, we're big Asana users for, you know, sort of task management, uh, link it all up to Slack, you know, so try to keep the stack similar. I mean, our business is rolling up or deploying the same function, revenue function, you know, stamping it out on top of each client. So we need to have a really good set of tools that we can deploy, you know, and have the client own each of those. And, um, that took a lot of time, but it, it was worth it. So. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I love writing documentation. It's nice to make pretty documentation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I really appreciate your point, though, around slowing down rather than um, the frenetic, you know, unscalable actions. And I think that doing things that are unscalable have their place. But I think you're I think you're right. As I look back on 10 years of entrepreneurship, it's like, man, in some sense, the frenetic activity, maybe sometimes you strike on a chord, but like the, the sense of like slowing down, you know, just taking a breath and really deciding what's the next right action seems like a much, 
it would have led to better outcomes than like just kind of crazed doing 20 things at once and seeing which ones stick. So I like that. I like that approach of just a little bit more mature, uh, grounded approach to do to what you focus on. I've never been called mature before, but I, I won't take <laughs> offense. But yeah. I, I don't know. To me, it, I, I am not a veteran. Uh, no one would probably want me uh, carrying, you know, a weapon into battle. But uh, you know, I I I like the playbook of you know. Uh, I think it's the special forces or Navy SEALs or something. Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Yeah. And yep. uh, or slow down to speed up and, you know, things like that. I I think that's right. Make make the early investment of time because time has the highest interest rate. You know, yep. like if, if we really look at the highest limitation is we could do a bunch of stuff. We just don't have more hours in the day. Yeah, I, you know, one of the things I'm trying, uh, and I've tried consistently to do this is I, I love Cal Newport's book, Deep Work. And one of the things that he walks through in that is a process for setting your schedule the next day. And it's, it's hard for me to do as an entrepreneur because things come up throughout the day that, that are urgent and, and, and sometimes important. Um, but what I like about when I'm able to get in that rhythm of really allocating every 30 minute block to specific tasks is it, it gives me more of a buffer. So I'm not getting whiplash from responding to impending fires. It gives me a little bit more perspective of like, okay, this is important, but I don't have to respond right away. So I, that's something I'm, I'm striving to do is be more deliberate in both my focus and time. <laughs> I am terrible at managing to-do lists. I behave to my calendar. I load my calendar too much. But uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I think in some senses, moving slow-ish allows you to have fewer fires. You know, if you don't, if you aren't sort of acting that way you create less damage like if i was frenetically adding clients it would just suck up the day you can't do what you're doing and um but then we look at you know i i, I certainly appreciate the like geez the bottom line the top line didn't grow as fast as as it did last year of course we're an order of magnitude bigger you can't grow on the same percentage rate as you did it just it's always like that and i don't care if you're a business going from you know five grand to 50 or from 50 to 500 or whatever that is like you're just creating an order of magnitude larger uh, number and slash problems uh you know on on top of it but you you really just need to chill out and and go go slow and you know you do find that even if you let that one opportunity go uh, if you keep running the same playbook, you know, with discipline, it, it will come out in your favor and the next opportunity will land in your lap. Yeah. You know, the thing I've, I, I think about a lot, I've never really articulated it is, um, one thing people don't realize about submarines is that buoyancy is like where you spend a lot of your mind share. So literally you're constantly taking on water and getting rid of water to maintain neutral buoyancy. And, you know, when you, you have sanitary tanks, when people go to the bathroom, those fill up, you have to get rid of those. You have to take on water. And, and one of the factors in that buoyancy is speed. And so, you know, there would be times where you're hauling, you're going like 20 knots, you're trying to get somewhere and you needed to maintain a log of like, okay, like where is our buoyancy right now and adjusting for that. And some people would get sloppy 
because they didn't they didn't have to care about buoyancy. They had so much speed that it covered up for these sloppy behaviors. But the moment that they'd slow down, you'd realize things were out of whack. And I feel like that with both funding and also with the pace at which we operate, you start to cover over a lot of bad things. Are you keeping your processes up to date? Are you keeping your systems up to date? Are you doing your daily tasks that keep the business in good order? And if you do that consistently day to day, you don't end up with these horrific problems that emerge when you bring on that next client or you get low on cash, like then the, the problems become more pronounced. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it comes to one thing we noticed being deliberate is that uh, it takes it always takes longer to bring on new team members than you you thought. I mean, you hoped that person X would be up to speed and could do their thing in 60 days. And it ends up taking five months, but we are really deliberate about building autonomous teams, duos, et cetera. And it sure feels good. Like after you slog it out and you can take your hands off that function and, and move on. So you know, sort of surround yourself and pay to get that help. So you don't need to think about that. I, I do think paying to free your calendar is a, is a tremendous opportunity. A lot of people experience that in entrepreneur world from the, you know, sort of Tim Ferriss, hire a VA type of, of vibe. And I think that's right. But I, I like to think of it as a, maybe a little bit more advanced into the, the functions as well. Like get yourself a really good, uh, you know, sort of interim CFO or, or something like that. It's just nice to know that I'll get a warning if uh, we're up against something on, you know, AR or AP and not have to dig into that myself and just get a financial statement at the end of the month. <laughs> it's been real nice for us. So. Yep. Yeah. I love, I'm, and I'm blanking on the name of the, the book. I'll probably remember before we wrap up, but it was, you know, the premise of it was just everything is systems. And what I liked about the way that, that I interpreted it was like, okay, right now I am in a let's say a sales rep capacity for my company. I need to write the playbook so I can hire someone to run that playbook. And then I get quote unquote promoted to sales manager. And I need to write that playbook as long as I'm doing it until I can hire for that. And, you know, I, I've, I've done this more or less unsuccessfully so far. Like, but I, I like your thought of slowing down to have those processes in place so that when I'm in a position to hire, I've got the playbook for them to follow. They're not inventing it on the fly. And teach everybody you hire to do the same thing. So this is where I think jobs or, you know, sort of corporate jobs uh, mistrain people because information hoarding feels as if I can protect myself and my job if, in fact, I'm the most important person in the small room because I don't, if I don't tell anybody what I do, then I'm indispensable and they can't lay me off because I'm important. Uh, and I would say, don't do that. It would be better to document yourself out of a job because then somebody else can take it and, and you can move up. It is the same discipline for a startup. We feel it a little bit more acutely of just like, geez, I really don't want to wear every hat anymore. Uh, it's not a good leverage on my time to invest in doing this menial thing that, that I'm pretty good at. I just don't like. It's not the best use of my time and trying to be discerning about how to allocate time is just the same as allocating your cash. 
Yeah. You know, one of the, the, the kind of the second thing that I'm trying to do different from Storybox is I'd had a, a huge team at Storybox and, and right now I'm leveraging a tremendous, uh, over 23 different contractors. So an army of contractors. And one of the things I like about that to your point just now is it's, it's very easy. It really forces me to create a process for each contractor. And it's very easy to add to that as I need more. And it's very easy to subtract from that as I realize we don't need that anymore. And so I'm a big fan of um, Upwork in particular of just any time I have something discreet that needs to get done, I can bring someone on, it's off my plate and I've got the system for them to run. You know, you need to have some sort of oversight and accountability, but for the most part, that, that's been the name of the game for Captivate is as soon as I've got something documented, hand it over to a contractor to do and then move on to the next thing. And that's gotten me from zero to 23 contractors. And it's easier than with employees. You know, we'll certainly be hiring full-time employees, but then you're going for a higher skill set. Usually you're going for someone who's got a little bit more autonomy and ability to add to their own process. And, you know, in my experience, it was very painful getting rid of people when their role was never, wasn't needed or it was the wrong person. It was a lot more emotional headache than, you know, a click of a button with a contractor and wishing them well. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say don't take for granted that that skill to manage that is sort of just automatic right like what nobody tells you is uh, you still have to manage you know you can pull together all those people you just created yourself a sort of different management paradigm you still have 23 humans doing different things that need to plug in together and so the process of having probably having gone through trying to utilize labor of any sense would allow you to manage contractors better uh, hire better, you know, know what to interview for, uh, know what skills actually kind of matter. And there's so many soft things to that, you know, so if we look at our job stuff, it's like, look, how are you a native remote worker? Or did you just sort of join that because it's what everybody else was doing, you know, because there's a lot of disciplines to that, you know, um, but yeah, and, and I'll, I'll give props to Upwork too. That thing used to be a disaster. And it is a tremendously good platform now. I'll say if you pay, I don't know if that was your experience, but the free version fell off a cliff uh, and dropping that 50 bucks a month really made a huge difference on getting some awesome talent from it. Yep. And pay payment mechanisms and, and all the stuff they have put in place there. That's a company that spent their going public dollars really well and uh, where I would not have recommended it before it had become sort of a cesspool. Uh, yeah. they, they really turned that thing around. So, you know, props to Upwork. Yeah. And two, two, two reactions on that. The first one in terms of the, the oversight headache of contractors, we, we actually did invest quite heavily in, we, we used monday.com as a foundation, but then did a lot of proprietary technology on top of it. And that is the only way in which I'm able to, to manage that number of contractors because almost all of them are on that system. We measure everything about what they do. Everything is automated. So like, I don't, honestly speak to most of the the contractors it's all kind of trigger based and so I don't want to oversell this as a as a cure-all but you know we, we invested to be able to support that number of contractors and then second of all to your your praise of upwork you know the 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 things that I appreciate most about it is when it comes to hiring 
to me, it feels like almost a riskless decision because I've got, you know, I've got my own criteria on what I hire for, but they, they need to have generated a lot of money on Upwork with a lot of positive reviews specifically for the tasks that I'm hiring them for. So I don't feel that heavy on an interview front. I just, I already know what I need to know about them. I really appreciate that. And then, like you said, the payments, it does simplify to just kind of have that taken care of that, that you could solve in other ways, but, um, it does de-risk it from a, from a starting point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would, I would say that Upwork management is a skill that's worth picking up and in the same way that you would skill up on any platform, you know, cause, uh, I think that if you understand that mechanism of like you just said there, like you, you, you needed to learn that how to sort and pull together the right stuff from the, the group, the cohort of all available contractors, you can sort by number of stars, you can sort by how many hours and how much money. And there are metrics there. That you can kind of knock out the bottom of the labor pool and, and then find the people, you know, worldwide that can kind of address that. It's a tremendous skill. You talked about Monday. I know there's also Process Street, which is a really great trigger-based, you know, sort of uh, management tool. What else is your stack for managing a contractor pool? Uh, Slack for some. Monday is the bulk of it. Those two might be it. I I do gusto. I'm a big fan of them for payroll. We we have probably maybe a third of our contractors are not from Upwork, maybe 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 half, and those are on Gusto. So that kind of simplifies time management and paying them. That's that's the bulk of it. I'm also this is a small one. I've I've become. I, I, I'm curious your thoughts on this. I've become a really big fan of Loom, which is a, uh, uh, and there's many tools like this, but I think it's the better one to, to kind of screen share and have a recording. So I will oftentimes, it's just, I think it's easier for me to create than it is for someone to consume, but I'll take a minute when I have a new process, I'll record a video saying what I need done and I'll send it to the person and say, literally like create the documentation showing this, but I'm going to show you once create a process so everyone can follow it. So it's, it's kind of a time multiplier for me. I, I personally hate, you know, having to watch people's videos. I'd rather skim text, but from a manager standpoint, I think it's killer. Yeah. Yeah. The asynchronous video definitely is better. And sometimes, you know, you're trying to explain something in text on a document or on Slack. And it's just like, this isn't working. Hold on. Let me just record you a thing. Uh, we like cloud app a lot, which is not as popular as some of the other ones, but, uh, we landed into that by, uh, my partner got a deal on a cloud app subscription and it lets you do all the video stuff. It lets you record little, uh, GIFs that like, so, you know, just no sound, but it's like, when you're just sort of trying to do the thing of click here, choose this menu item, it's under this setting. Explaining that in text is terrible. You don't need a full-fledged video. So it does it does GIFs, it does screenshots, um, and it keeps the whole library, you know, kind of in the cloud and this really like accessible little app. So uh, yeah, props to cloud app as well. But you, you're totally right. I think some people abuse Loom and, you know, I'm like, oh my God, a 10 minute video again about this, you know, um, keep it short. 
I, I had a, I, um, I work with a variety of vendors and one of them sent me like a 20 minute video. And I was like, I was like, I'm not going to watch that. You need to tell me like in sentence form what I need to do. Cause you've got 20 seconds of my attention. You know, one thing I did want to make sure I touched on though, too, is just thinking of, of, you know, we had talked about scars and lessons learned. I'll tell you the one thing that I, I hold most closely to heart, especially right now, but you know, throughout my journey with Captivate is, so when I started Storybox, it actually started as a company called The One About, and then it became Video Genie, which was all about video testimonials for businesses, and then it became Storybox. But the, the biggest mistake I made in our business is, our name was Video Genie, we were about video testimonials, and I kept on getting feedback from our customers of, we would really like to do photos. Hey, what's going on with Instagram? And I, because I had just raised $2 million, I was very, very much not open to that. I was, I was, I would say I was more in love with our product than with our customer. And so kept on getting this feedback and ignored it and said, no, we're all about video. Here's all the stats on how video is going to explode. This is why this is the next big thing. And a company came along that was focused on photos. It was focused on Instagram and they were sold for $130 million. And I missed that pivot by about a year. And so one of the things I keep in the forefront on a daily basis with Captivate is, you know, first of all, what are our customers saying? How can I be as empathetic as possible to what they're wanting? And two, what's the bigger opportunity? Like I need to be willing to ditch, I mean, we've spent a lot of money on our technology, I need to be willing to throw that in the trash in a heartbeat if I realize that there's a bigger opportunity and a bigger way to serve our clients. And it is nuanced. Like I love the quote from Henry Ford where he said, if I listened to my customers, I would have built a faster horse. I'm not implying that it's as simple as like our customers tell us to build this, we build this. But you do have to, I know, I, I need to be on all of our sales calls filtering through what people are wanting. And I need to be on our client calls to hear about their pain points and always being curious about what's a better way to serve them rather than here's what we built, how can we force this to solve their problems? And, and that's only a lesson that I have because of a really big scar of a mistake I made, but something I, I hope that your audience benefits from as well. Yeah, absolutely. We talk a lot about, you know, how and where to use customer feedback and which, what's the signal to the noise. You can't fork your product for every feedback that you get, uh, but, you know, where can you get that consistent signal? from from feedback that would allow you to do a pivot. I mean, that's the stuff that and you know, I I think if it doesn't sell like brain dead easy, you're probably not fully pivoted to where you need to be. Like if you're really trying to convince people on a regular basis, maybe you don't have something right about either product or or service. So I agree. And I, I view even where we're at today. The last thing I'll say is it's like, it is kind of like the heat seeking missile, like constant pivots where it's like, okay, we're in the right area, but we haven't cracked it. I don't think we have like true product market fit yet. And that's why customer feedback and sales prospect feedback is so vital and finding the vein that will allow the fastest growth possible. Love that. Uh, we could go. I know you and me could go on forever, but we'll have to we'll have to chop it on the uh, recording block here. Justin, uh, where do people get in touch with you? I know you like to talk to founders and uh, you're a consummate networker. So uh, what's the best channels? 
Uh, two two ways, Captivate.ai, if you request a demo, that still gets routed to me, or Justin at Captivate.ai. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, Nasiri is a pretty unique last name, Justin Nasiri at Captivate, if, uh, if you want to hit me up on LinkedIn as well. Awesome, man. Thanks for coming out. Love the insights. I know everybody learned from it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.